Here's my observation about that one. I see a resurgent conservatism today, and I think it's motivated by a reaction to Pope Francis. I think there are many serious-minded theologians who are less than happy about what they ha see happening in the Vatican. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Pastor Theologian Show. Today we have part two of our conversation with Chris Castaldo, who is the lead pastor at New Covenant Church in Naperville, Illinois. If you missed part one, I encourage you to go back and give that a listen. It's the episode immediately previous to this one. Let's jump right back in where we left off last week. Just delighted to be back with you. Great to be with you, Todd. Yeah, we had a fascinating conversation in the first round, talking about your your story, your biography. Tons of interesting things there to see God's providence and and the uh, the metaphor of Mister Magoo is in my head. I can't get that out. <laughs> the way you talk need, about your <laughs> get some bifocals. Yes, yeah, seriously, the interaction of providence with your life and sort of. Oh, I love that. That's good. Um, I, we we rounded off the last conversation with the the idea that. I resonate with, uh, and I suspect you do as well, that so much of theology, our theology is a reflection of our biography. Theology is autobiography. It can be, that can be uh, taken in directions we don't want it to go, but um, I, I just can't help but see a ton of connections between your life story and your professional, academic, and theological interests, and, and thought we could get this part of the conversation going uh, in that way. You are a young adult uh, Catholic convert, um, and you have worked in this Catholic Protestant interface space uh, professionally and have spent quite a bit of time researching on the issue of justification and Catholic and Protestant understandings of it and written quite a bit on all of this. So I just tee up the conversation that way. Uh, does that resonate with you, Chris? Yeah, I would say it was born out of the challenge of talking with my family and some friends who were Catholic about my faith. And, uh, you know, it's Christmas dinner, right? You go and you, you pray that you'll be a light and you, yes. but inevitably it becomes the same train wreck it was last year, <laughs> yes. right? Because you fall into uh, polemics and uh, caricatures. Can and you, so, can you give us some concrete examples of how that went, Chris, not to air out your family's dirty laundry, but how, how did that go? Can you like, oh, I had this one conversation, I went this way with it, and it and it just did not go well with a family member. Yeah, there's often So we get a feel for how that went. Yeah, the assumption that, you know, Protestants believe in faith in such mm. a way that it's just mental assent, it's fire insurance, it's cheap grace, and uh, you don't take seriously uh, a life of virtue. Yeah. And, of course, it works the other way around, that, that Catholics are all about works and it's pharisaical right. that and legalistic. absolutely cuts both ways. Mm -hmm. Like there's a Protestant stereotype for what Catholics are like and there's a Catholic stereotype for what Protestants are like mm -hmm. the, theologically, mm -hmm. not even to mention culturally. So, yeah. yeah. So how do we engage that conversation yeah. in a way that avoids the caricatures, yep. recognizes the the assets of the other person's position, but but is uh, also uh, faithful hmm. to what we believe Scripture to teach. 
mm-hmm. has theological integrity. I mean, so often we go to one extreme or the other. We're either yeah. foaming at the mouth pit bull, going mm-hmm. for the jugular of our Catholic friend, mm-hmm. or I'm afraid we could be so open-minded that our brains fall out of our heads and we don't uphold yeah. Yeah. what we should. Yes. So uh, for me, it was that sort of conversation in my life, in uh, many of the people that I was serving who came from a Catholic background, had Catholic family members struggling to have a productive conversation. That's what led me to write Holy Ground and then eventually led me to do research on the same topic. Mm. Mm. So that's the, you know, the question of how does, how does Paul and James relate? How do we have a serious commitment to works as an evangelical Protestant and Reformed tradition who's committed to faith alone? Uh, that was the the central question that motivated me to embark on the research of Newman. And talk us talk to us about the dissertation. Get in, get into the weeds and uh, geek out a little bit here theologically yeah. for us on your dissertation and what contribution it makes to this whole conversation. Well, so so these uh, individuals, John Henry Newman was a, a Calvinist at age fifteen. Um, of course, he led. Uh, along with others, the Oxford movement in the middle of his life, 1845, converts to Roman Catholicism and just canonized a month Mm, or two ago. mm. And um, he, uh, when he was an Anglican, uh, offered a series of lectures on justification. In 1837, uh, Adam de Brome Chapel at St. Mary's. And the next year that became a volume. Mm. And it is part of his Via Media project in which he... Uh, upholds forensic imputation and internal renewal together under the aegis of justification. Now, what was interesting is that just a few centuries earlier, there was this Protestant reformer named Peter Martyr, who was a significant Catholic leader, Augustinian abbot, who rose in the ranks in many ways. But then he, uh, in Naples, was exposed to the doctrine of justification by faith alone, Uh, reading the reformers, and uh, he has a conversion experience, which led to his departure from the Roman Catholic Church. He flees north of the Alps. He goes to Strasbourg, where he serves with uh, Martin Bootser, eventually to uh, England, uh, alongside of Cranmer, uh, back to Strasbourg, and then finally to Zurich. And he too has a doctrine of justification that includes forensic imputation and internal renewal under the banner of, of justification. So my uh, research is, is concerned with how do these positions, which wow. on the face of it are really quite similar, they're a duplex justitia, yes. a twofold righteousness, uh, how are they alike, how do they differ, and what does that teach us about opportunities for engagement with Catholics today? Wow, wow, wow. So Vermeule is very much like Calvin their understanding, their doctrines are, you know, similar with regard to justification. It flows out of union with Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, The difference, however, is that for Vermeule, there's a strict understanding of justification, which is forensic. The the, the reason why we're accepted by God Mm -hmm. is uh, because of the, the perfection, righteousness of Jesus attributed to us, imputation. But then he has a secondary understanding of justification which involves the working of the spirit to cultivate virtue in the heart. Mm. And the reason he does this is because the, the Bible uses that language, yes. you know, use the righteousness language to describe the working of the spirit. 
and and so he's trying to hold it together in a way that preserves the the reason, the ground, the fundamental cause of our acceptance yep. before yep. God, but l- allowing Scripture to speak to the the way in which justification um, necessitates mm. good works. Mm-hmm and uh, results in God's pleasure and, and the rewards of God for eternity on account of those works. And the Protestant tradition has not followed him. I mean, he's a minority report within the Protestant tradition. Is that right, Chris? And, and, and was he surrounded with controversy in his own day and age? In or? his own day, it was more common. So if you read Martin Bootser, uh, Oikolampedius and other reformers, they would have articulated a very yeah. similar understanding of justification. And then what happened in your reading of Prote- the development of Protestant theology? Well, in the confession-building process, yes. uh, it was Calvin's uh, duplex gratia, the twofold grace, uh, which was far more influential and led to more of a, a distinction uh, perhaps in some cases even a bifurcation between oh. justification and sanctification. And um, there's value in that, frankly. Yeah, I mean, right. as a pastor, when I speak on the subject, I like Calvin's right. explanation because it's clear and it's simple, yeah. but it doesn't always capture the nuances of the biblical text. Yes. You so know, this, we, is the, this is the, always the catch-22, isn't it? Yes. Right. Huh. So you need wisdom when you speak wow, about this. Yes. I mean, you, you, I had a, a family leave the church because I articulated uh, some of these ideas from Vermeule, and it sounded to them like I was espousing a, a Roman Catholic understanding yeah. of, of the matter, and uh, and I got a note. <laughs> they were gone. So. And so, how, but how do you, so you you obviously, I mean, I, I infer from that. Um, and obviously from previous conversations, that that you think um, the Protestant tradition ought to uh, leave space for Vermeule's view and position. Is that right? Yeah. Shouldn't be written out of the Protestant canon, as it were. Yeah, I, th- I think we have to value uh, Calvin. I think so often what we call Reformed gospel Christianity is is more Lutheran than yeah. it is yes. actually yes. Calvinist yes. In, in the sense that it's it's the it's the law gospel dialectic uh, all i can do as a christian is um, is believe and uh, there's not the expectation that i will embody mm. a habit of righteousness it's especially forensic in that it's especially sense. forensic yes. yeah not not to say that calvin isn't forensic in some of his emphases either right he he totally is yes. w- with regard to the strict understanding of why we're accepted yes but when you talk about the the christian life mm-hmm. uh, virtue is is not an option no he it's doesn't back, he doesn't back down on that at all yeah and and so uh, here's a way to ask the question does God find pleasure in our works? You know, Calvin and Vermeule offer, and in fact, yes, yes, he's, because because he's gracious. He's gracious. Is what Calvin our, our our works, though they are imperfect, they're flawed, they're buttressed by the righteousness of Christ because we're in Christ, and so they're Christified, they're completed mm-hmm. by Christ, and thus they're pleasing to the Father, and that's a a motivation for us to press into works. Um, because that's what we're made for. You had some a great way of saying this, Todd, in your volume on Titus I read. Mm. I think you said, so often in our evangelical tradition, um, our concern to safeguard the ground of justification has caused us to lose sight of the goal. 
Did I say that? I like you that. That sounds that. good. Yeah. <laughs> that's what you said. That's, <laughs> that's why we have people in this podcast who quote, quote me back to me. Yeah. I use that. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's a helpful way of diagnosing the problem. Yeah. Great. That's helpful. Justification is concerned with the goal. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and was it helpful to have John Henry Newman laid alongside him in the research and the writing? Did it it was. So the thing about Newman is when he was an Anglican, so he first published this volume in 1838. He republished it in 1874 now as a Catholic with a few minute changes. Wow. And he said, I don't think I knew the only that, reason why I've republished this is because uh, I believe essentially what I wrote then. However, when you look at the changes he made to the latter volume, um, brief as they are, Significant. Very significant. Okay, okay. And I... He knew what he was doing with the he changes. He knew what he was doing. Yeah. yeah. And so I would argue it moved from a, a via media that was mostly Protestant, Catholic-friendly, to a via Romana, which was basically Augustinian in the Catholic sense. Wow. In the wow. latter. So, but having said that, I think we still should read Newman. He's inspiring. And the way we can do You'd it... You'd say insp- I mean, inspiring. You yes. use that, you'd choose that term intentionally. Inspiring. I do. I do because, not just interesting right, or educational. Exactly. Because what he's saying of justification, while we will disagree with that, we can and should apply that to our understanding of sanctification. Hmm. The, 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 the adherent presence of God, divine indwelling, the way in which uh, the hmm. Holy Spirit brings to us this community of love. I mean, he's very much like Jamie Smith at this point, yes. very concerned with the heart and the, and the affections. There's a lot of good stuff there. And I would say we shouldn't understand... Uh, all of that with regard to our acceptance before God. But we certainly should in terms of the outworking of our Christian lives. Mm. Did you ever find yourself, and maybe this is a weird question, did you ever find yourself thinking maybe John Henry Newman has the better part of the argument on this one? On which one? On justification. Um, did you ever think maybe maybe the, this Catholic position is, you know, this is, this is the, the better way to put the pieces together? Did you ever find a... Find yourself saying that or asking? No. That question, no? I didn't, honestly. Uh, so I've, as I just said, there's a lot about it that is valuable. Yeah. Um, but we need to ask ourselves the question, at the end of the day, why are we children of God? Is it something that we uh, bring to the table in terms of our final justification? Yeah. Uh, or is it the finished work of Christ? The Catholic understanding, including Newman, would say we're accepted because of the spirit working in our hearts. Mm-hmm. And the Reformation tradition would say, no, it's the work of Christ on the cross, mm-hmm. the benefits of which are attributed to us. That's vital. Yes. And that's the difference between having peace before God versus having the sort of existential angst that leads to despair, yeah. I'm afraid. So there's still, there's I say, there still is something to this. So we're here in the Billy Graham Center conducting this podcast, which was the home, not not the Billy Graham Center, but Wheaton College, the home of, of one of the most highly regarded church historians in North America and certainly evangelical scholars, Mark Knoll, before he went to Notre Dame, who published a book with the title, Is the Reformation Over? And the answer was basically, yes. Um, do you think 
that's right on the issue of justification, Chris. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So in 2017, I co-authored a book with Greg Allison yeah. called The Unfinished Reformation. Yes. You can imagine how we answered those yes, questions. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this is all just, <laughs> a, this is just underhanded <laughs> was, softball pitch to you, good. Chris. Thank this you. is what we do in podcasting. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, important observations that Noel makes. We have made progress. You know, uh, the joint declaration has moved in mm -hmm. meaningful ways beyond mm -hmm. Trent, but it hasn't moved beyond Trent in the most important ways, namely the ground by which we're accepted by God. Imputation is not part of the JDD, yeah. joint declaration. Um, so for that reason, I don't think we can say that the Reformation is over. And what, what, do you, what is your sense of the future of this this? ongoing, long-standing yeah. dialogue between Protestant and Catholics, it's, particularly on the article of justification, which yeah. has been the, 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 I mean, there are obviously there are other theological differences that are significant, but it's, it's, it's at the core. Do you see this ever getting resolved in, let's say, our lifetime, Chris, or? I've, I've had the privilege of being part of a few formal ecumenical dialogues. When yeah. I was here at the Billy Graham Center, I hosted the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity, who came and dialogued with the World Evangelical Alliance, and I was permitted to participate on the evangelical side. I was surprised by the lack of familiarity our Catholic conversation partners had with the historic Protestant position. Oh, was that right? I was surprised. Working with, I don't mean this to be demeaning by any means, but working with some of the characters that we were speaking about earlier? Yeah. The, the, Is that what you're saying? Just, the, just kind of... The characterizations that existed at Trent uh, yes. with regard to Luther. The anathemas that were pronounced. Yeah, who, yes. who didn't care about holiness or virtue or these sorts of things. Yeah. I heard many of those same caricatures coming wow. from... Or dismissive of tradition or anything or other things like that that Trent speaks about. Those things as well or just unjust? Well, it went both ways. The, the, the Catholics, you know, didn't quite appreciate the importance of uh, what the... Protestants were trying to say in the 16th century yes. in bringing together faith alone, but also a robust life of virtue. But but yeah, and you could say that we Protestants uh, often fail to appreciate the nuances of what our Catholic mm. friends are trying to say. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that, and that's why you do dialogue, right? Is yeah. to understand better. But to your question about progress. Yeah, what are you um, thinking? It didn't seem as though we made any. And then more recently, <laughs> I, I was part of a, a dialogue on this same topic with the United States Council of Catholic Bishops. And here's my observation about that one. I see a resurgent conservatism today. To, and I within think the Catholic yep, tradition. And I think it's motivated by a yes. reaction to Pope Francis. Yes. I think there are many serious-minded theologians Is who are right, less than happy about what they ha see happening in the Vatican. Fascinating. And yes. you can see this even if you drive up to Mundelein and look around. It's evident in the way seminarians dress. You'll see the cassocks. I have can, you, can you clarify what's in going on in Mundelein? So Mundelein is the largest Catholic seminary in yes, the nation. We have it right up here and it's a known to be a conservative Catholic yes, school. Just for people who aren't familiar. Yeah. And uh, I was speaking with Thomas Bema there who explained that you will see much more traditionalism mm. now than you would have in decades past. And I think it is in some sense a reaction. Even with Benedict. Pope, no, I, I, no think, I, I felt safe with Benedict. Benedict yeah. was bad. <laughs> well, holding the line. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I just mean even as recently as Pope Benedict is what I mean. I, I think it's really ramped up 
over the last few years. Since since Francis in the last three or four or five years. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, uh, uh, an awkward position Hmm. for the conservative Catholic. I had dinner the other night with a friend. It makes sense, though, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, who's who's a very bright uh, Catholic um, leader and uh, layperson, but theologically initiated. And I wanted to know what he thought about Francis. I've never asked him. Uh. And I've worked out a way to, to get the answer very easily. Here's what I say. I say... You know, I'll tell you, I loved Benedict's writing yes. on Jesus and Paul, and uh, they're so insightful. And um, Benedict, but for our listeners who may not be familiar, Benedict, Ratzinger. Uh, Joseph Ratzinger, yeah. previously known as, was a serious heavyweight theologian. Yes, yes. B- biblical scholar. World-class yeah. scholar, biblical scholar, and theologian yeah. in his own right. Yeah, yep. and my fr- friend Tom just lit up. He's like, oh, Benedict. We didn't know how good we had yeah. it. And then he had so much momentum, he couldn't stop. And he started to tell me what he actually believes about Francis. So, but so, yeah, it's it's an interesting time. Fascinating. I'm, I'm curious to redirect a little bit in the time that we have. And we've talked, we've, we've touched on this a little bit, but we talk about kind of the state of Protestant Catholic relations and then the future of Protestant Catholic relations. Um, I'm thinking now on like the, the lay level in local churches where there is for some people in some circles within kind of the evangelical tradition that we represent, um, an abiding anti-Catholic disposition bias so much so that church practices, you'll still regularly hear this church practices that are introduced in a local church, maybe if it's have the, or, or talked about, maybe we should think about doing communion every week. And the response is, we can't do that. That's too Catholic. Or maybe we should think about reading prayers together instead of just having someone do a pastoral prayer before the sermon. And the response is, again, for some folks, negative because it feels too Catholic or something like that. Um, I'm just curious, as you, since you've been working in this space for so long, um, how do you respond when stuff like that comes up in your own ministry context or um, people expect you to be um, consistently bad-mouthing Catholic theology because it's, in their mind, um, just soulless and, and uh, demonic even at worst? We have um, to be proactive. Yeah, that. so I'm just, I'm just wondering, I'm, if just... On that level, the local church level, mm-hmm. if you have any thoughts on that. Absolutely. Preaching uh, to include analogies that are drawn from the history of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, I recently quoted um, Archbishop Cardinal George you know, mm-hmm. here in Chicago who, who made that statement that uh, he'll die in peace. He expects his uh, successor to die in prison. He, the successor wow. to him will die a martyr. And then we'll pick up the pieces. Wow. And I, I shared that as uh, a statement about uh, what might be coming uh, for us in the future. Uh, but I purposefully chose that quote. I yes. Could, I could have selected others as a way of saying, look, th- there are insights from the Catholic tradition from which we can benefit. We don't need to be afraid of them. And uh, I'll, I'll seize opportunities. And, it, and it's, you know. And why is that important to do? Why is it important to try to heal some of the divide between Catholics and Protestants? Because we are in Naperville, which is largely Roman Catholic. We have so many friends. And in order for the conversation about the gospel to be fruitful, we need to approach it 
in a in a balance that includes appreciation and respect and admiration. Yes, I mean, I, I don't hesitate to say that there are uh, assets in the Catholic tradition from which we need to learn and benefit. Yes, and, and um, you know, I think of uh, Bishop Robert Barron's emphasis on the via pulchritudinis, the way of beauty, and uh, how that captures the heart and. Uh, so I want us to be conversant with those ideas and prepared to talk with our Catholic neighbors in constructive ways. Most of the people on my street are Catholic. And I love to talk with them as the Protestant pastor who expresses appreciation for their Catholic mm, tradition. Mm, mm. They don't expect it, that. And they don't experience it all that much in their lives, I would imagine, from yeah. Protestant from clergy. Protest yeah, right. I suspect you're right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, for me, that's the telos. Yeah. How are we uh, equipping the saints to be uh, an effective witness in the places we live? And it is uh, that practical. Uh, so, uh, but yeah. can I press on something a little bit? Because I just noticed even in the language that you're using, you're using witness language and neighbor language to mm -hmm. refer to many. Roman Catholic people, yep. whereas some people might be more inclined to use brother-sister language. Do you hesitate to use that language, or yeah. are you happy to use that language, or what, what, what's, going on, what's going on there? To say that we need to be a witness to our, our Catholic friend is not necessarily to make a judgment mm. on the validity of that person's yes. faith. Yes. Because you know when you and I go to church uh, each Sunday, we want to share the gospel with one another, right? Yes. In fact, when we wake up every morning, I need to remind Chris who he is in Christ, preach the gospel <laughs> to myself. So uh, to, yeah. to, to talk in terms of witness is simply to say, I want that friend to be drawn closer to Jesus as a result of our interaction. Yes. And that's true for the Catholic, for yep. the Protestants, true for everyone. Marvelous. Love that. That's very good. What a wonderful way to, we're going to end on that note, Chris. That's a great way to, to close out this conversation. Thank you so much for your life, your ministry, your writing, the important things that you're doing, and, and for being with us today to share a little bit about your story and your theological reflections as well. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Chris. It's my pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the CPT Podcast, a theology podcast for the church. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider throwing us a like, sharing the podcast online, subscribing, leaving a review. Uh, anything like that would go a long way towards helping other people hear about the podcast. Uh, the CPT Podcast is a ministry of the Center for Pastor Theologians. You can learn more about the CPT by visiting us at pastortheologians.com. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our host for today's episode was Todd Wilson. Our producer and editor was Trenton Jones. Our music was composed by Andrew Gerlicher. I'm Zach Wagner. Thanks for listening.